This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The Chinese and Russian militaries have been excluded from a large international defence conference which opens today outside Melbourne. For the first time in four years, the Avalon Air Show is back, with organisers saying it'll be the biggest in the event's 30-year history. And an Australian-developed drone, capable of carrying more than 100 kilograms of weapons, will be unveiled this morning. His defence correspondent, Andrew Green. In the skies around Melbourne, the roar of fast jets is back. Today, after a four-year absence, the Avalon Airshow returns with a focus on Australia's air defences. Our competitive advantage achieved through strength, readiness and partnerships will be vital in deterring conflict in the future. And that, of course, is our objective. Royal Australian Air Force Chief Air Marshal Rob Chipman is this week hosting dozens of his counterparts from across the world. The international military gathering taking place as tensions grow in the Indo-Pacific and the war in Ukraine enters its second year. It is not just about the platforms and technology. We need to invest in the humans that will maintain our competitive edge. If it was not for the resilience and resourcefulness of the Ukrainian people, we might be reflecting on a very different outcome today. 56 international delegations are attending Avalon this year, but Defence has not invited the Chinese and Russian militaries, just as both nations were told they were not welcome at an international naval conference in Sydney last year. Defence Industry Minister Pat Conroy will visit Avalon this week, where almost 800 companies are represented. Avalon really is the premier air show in Australia, if not the Southern Hemisphere. It's a great opportunity to showcase the great capabilities the Royal Australian Air Force have. I think we really do have, pound for pound, the best Air Force in the world. Already attention's turning to why the RAAF still doesn't have any armed drones, despite the American military operating them for decades. The ABC can reveal that a new Australian autonomous unmanned aircraft capable of carrying a deadly payload of 160 kilograms will be unveiled at the air show. The armed system has been developed by BAE Systems and could be in local production within three years. Andrew Green. As communities across northern New South Wales remember the devastating floods a year ago, people in southeast Queensland are also marking the anniversary of their disaster. 22,000 homes and businesses were affected across the region. About a third of them were inundated when heavy rain caused widespread flooding, as Annie Guest reports. Bernadette Heatherton bought in Fairfield in Brisbane's Inner West after the enormous 2011 flood, believing it'd be decades before another one. Yeah, 50 years, I thought. And then the flood came. And then the flood came. What was that like to experience a flood going through your home? Well, I got out as as soon as I saw the water coming down the hill and coming, I got a family to pick me up. The retired nurse had moved from Mount Isa to be close to her family and chose this post-war home partly because it's low set. Water rose about 30 centimetres above the floorboards and she didn't have insurance. Did you think about selling? I did, but I took a time in finding here and then the hassle of selling was going to be traumatic as well. 
the government offered uh, help with raising it, then I accepted that. I thought that's exactly what I need. The federal and Queensland governments have jointly allocated $740 million for buybacks, $100,000 grants to raise homes and $50,000 grants to repair or retrofit. Bernadette Heatherton is bracing to have to spend more when she raises her house. She's considering a stair lift to give her access as she ages. How much difference do you think it'll make to your peace of mind if there is a flood coming, if you're upstairs? Oh, it'll make tremendous, yeah, yeah. A couple of streets away, Michael McKechnie considers himself lucky that only his garage flooded. In his 20-plus years here, he's watched insurance premiums rise with the floodwaters. It is a lot. It's probably something like a 20% jump. I think it's around 700 or something like that a month now. There you go. Thank you. John Tai and his wife bought their St Lucia corner store more than 40 years ago, later expanding it to a supermarket with huge refrigerators spanning 15 metres along the walls. The place has gone under in every flood since 1974. See the, all the fan motor in the bottom here, all around the bottom, all damaged. 24 fan motor, yeah. A 24 fan motor yeah, yeah, gone? Yeah, yeah, it's gone, yeah. How much did that cost... Oh, uh, more than 10000 Any insurance? No. He doesn't want to sell up and retire. Instead, the ground floor will become a car park and the shop will be built above. But first, he'll join the long queue waiting for tradespeople. Annie Guest reporting. There are warnings Victoria could face gas shortages from as early as this winter as production from fields in Bass Strait rapidly taper off. Here's energy reporter Daniel Mercer. Yaron Flicker's textile-making business has always relied on gas, but until recently, he rarely paid much attention to where he was getting it from or how much it was costing him. It was always important. Gas, electricity and water are the basis of our business. Uh, but gas, electricity and water was roughly 3 to 4% of my value add for many years. That all changed for the Melbourne-based manufacturer a few years ago when rising gas prices started chewing up more and more of his costs. Prices rose from about $5 a gigajoule to almost $10. The 64-year-old is now paying more than $20 a gigajoule and he can only secure one month's supply at a time. Costs and uncertainty that he's passing on to his customers. Well, I've lost about 50% of my customers. The ones I've lost have, have either gone and bought the garments from overseas. I've got a number of customers who've done that. And some of them who make fabric have just imported the finished fabric from overseas. It's quite precarious. Victoria is heavily dependent on gas for its households and industry. Watchdogs, including the Australian Energy Regulator, suggest the situation is likely to get worse, with shortfalls emerging at peak times from as early as this winter. The Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association says depleting gas fields in the Bass Strait are behind the immediate challenge. But Chief Executive Samantha McCulloch argues longer-term forces are also at play. I think what we're seeing now is, is the legacy of years of bans and moratoriums on gas exploration and development. Uh, we're now also seeing the impacts of federal government interventions in the gas market that are really uh, acting as a roadblock to new investment and new supply. Australian Workers' Union National Secretary Daniel Walton says the big gas exporters share much of the blame for the supply crunch, but agrees new supplies are needed. 
But if you sign up to the simplistic view being put forward, that we can simply turn off gas overnight and that we will continue to have a manufacturing base in the country and particularly in the state of Victoria, and that is just simply false. In a statement, Victorian Energy Minister Lily D'Ambrosio says Victoria continues to produce more than enough gas for its own needs, with most of the rest sent to New South Wales. The minister also says Victoria has led the way in pushing for increased storage reserves ahead of winter and that big producers need to ensure there aren't shortfalls. Textile maker Yaron Flicker desperately hopes federal government efforts to cap gas prices can help. The worst case scenario is that I'll close down and about 35 to 40 direct jobs will disappear and probably about 500 plus indirect jobs will also disappear. I mean, that's a real possibility. Melbourne textile maker Yaron Flicker ending Daniel Mercer's report. The UK says it's opened a new chapter in its relationship with the European Union following years of bitter divisions over Brexit. The two sides have made a new trade deal for Northern Ireland, but it will still be subject to some European laws which could be unpopular with hardline Brexiteers. Europe correspondent Nick Dole reports from London. At the height of Brexit negotiations, there were very few smiles between UK and EU leaders. But overnight in Windsor, the UK rolled out the red carpet for EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. There was even a meeting with the King. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says the relationship has turned a corner. The United Kingdom and European Union may have had our differences in the past, but we are allies, trading partners and friends something that we've seen clearly in the past year as we joined with others to support Ukraine. This is the beginning of a new chapter in our relationship. Let's get Brexit done. As part of the Brexit deal that Boris Johnson agreed to, Northern Ireland had to keep following some European laws and product standards. That was to avoid having to establish a hard border with the Republic of Ireland, which is in the European Union. But it also meant that goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland were subject to customs checks, even though it's part of the UK. Unionists in Northern Ireland were angry that some food and medicine available in other parts of the UK weren't available there. They said they felt cut off from their own country and boycotted the Northern Irish Parliament. So as part of a deal to try to ease that friction, trusted UK suppliers will be able to send products to Northern Ireland via so-called green lanes without customs checks. But some EU trade regulations will still apply in Northern Ireland, and Ursula von der Leyen says that means submitting to a European court. Yes, indeed, the European Court of Justice is the sole and ultimate arbiter of EU law. That's natural because uh, it's prescribed by the EU legal order. So the ECJ will have the final say on EU law and single market issues. That will be one of the key sticking points as Rishi Sunak tries to get parliamentary support for this deal, both from his own hardline Brexiteers, but also from Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party. Its leader is Geoffrey Donaldson. Let's face it, it has taken months to get to this point uh, and we will not be rushed, will not be pushed into a hasty decision. To try to sweeten the deal, politicians in Northern Ireland will be given a veto power over changes to European trade laws but that's unlikely to ease all their concerns. Watching all of this is Boris Johnson. There's speculation the former Prime Minister might try to lead a revolt against his successor's plan. But for now, he's biding his time while the country sifts through the detail of what could be an historic breakthrough. 
This is Nick Dole in London reporting for AM. Forty advocacy groups, including unions, are calling on the federal government to allow visa extensions and also bring in whistleblower protections for migrant workers who are fighting dodgy employers. It comes as the government seeks to overhaul the migration system. Business reporter Amelia Turzon filed this story. After studying hospitality and business in Australia on a student visa, Indian migrant Indigit Kaur landed a job in a regional Victorian restaurant. Whatever he instructs me, I cook because he's my boss. He was my boss. She needed this job to get a skilled worker visa to stay in Australia. So when her boss said to her that the work was unpaid until that visa was processed, she agreed. She ended up doing 20 hours of work a week for seven months without pay. That was very hard, harder without money for my family, for myself. But I'm helpless. They can cancel my visa. They can spoil my visa. They can spoil my career. So you felt silenced? I have no opportunity. I have less. When Indigit Kaur's visa arrived, her sponsoring employer asked her to help pay for it and also agree to an arrangement where she would reimburse any wages that were paid to her. She refused and lost her job. Yes, is first I broken, totally, totally broken, dealing with all the problems. Then I think so is Australia will listen to me. Indigit Kaur got legal help and in 2020 they took her boss and the company to the Federal Circuit Court for breaches of the Fair Work Act. It found her employer, who the ABC has agreed not to name, took advantage of her vulnerability and desperation to obtain a visa in a grossly exploitative way. It's a profoundly affecting story, even though I've heard it many, many times before. Human Rights Legal Centre's managing lawyer, San Marti Verma, has worked with many migrants, including Indigit Kaur. It's a profoundly rare case. And that is precisely because, as happened with Indrajit, to take action against your employer is to risk the cancellation of your visa, is to render yourself insecure because you have no visa options to remain in Australia to pursue action against your employer. Professor Alan Fells chaired a 2019 coalition government review on protecting migrant workers. His 22 recommendations included tougher criminal sanctions for employers who do the wrong thing. The Albanese government is now overhauling the migration system. The immigration minister is Andrew Giles. So we've got to look at what Professor Fells said and we've committed to implementing his recommendations. We're getting on with the job right now of preparing legislation to do that. But we're also looking at what we've learned since then and listening to the voices of migrant workers and people who are representing them in doing so. Today, 40 advocacy groups, including the Human Rights Legal Centre, are also calling for whistleblower protections for migrant workers and a visa for them to stay and fight dodgy employers. Professor Fells is backing these extra measures. Yes, I'm confident and hopeful and I see the need for a whole review of migration policy. My one warning is don't bury the migrant underpayment issue in wider review of migration and end up doing nothing. Indigit Kaur is still in regional Victoria on a bridging visa. She and her husband have two children and they hope they can stay in Australia together. 100% sure Australia is a good country. Need to some fixing, otherwise uh, 
I'm very happy here. Migrant worker Indigit Kaur ending that report by Amelia Turzon. And in a statement, the Shadow Immigration Minister Dan Tian says the coalition introduced tough laws and increased penalties to address migrant worker exploitation. The sudden closure of an inner Brisbane GP practice could have dire consequences for more than 1,000 patients being treated for opioid dependence. A leaked report from Queensland Health warns they're at risk of illicit drug use, overdoses and even death if they can't find alternative care. Emma Pollard reports and a note to protect the identity of the patients in this story, we've changed their names and used the voices of actors. On a hot day in a cramped Brisbane unit, Jane explains how she developed a heroin addiction. I was in a really difficult, abusive relationship. My stepson had died suddenly and it went from there, basically. That's what kicked it off. The former teacher is in her 50s. I was living in an upmarket suburb, kids in private schools, that sort of stuff. You wouldn't have looked at me and thought addict, but I was. Marnie first took the drug in her late 30s, muting the pain of childhood trauma and while her husband Steve was away in prison. It made me numb, all the pain I was hiding, things that I'd been through in my life. For Steve, his cycle of addiction and incarceration was broken with the help of a Brisbane GP who prescribed buprenorphine, a medication that reduces cravings for illicit opioids. I can work, I can function as a father, I can function as a husband and I don't need to rob anyone no more because I don't use heroin. But late last year, Dr Stuart Reese, the GP who treated them and almost 1,100 other opioid-dependent patients, suddenly closed his doors. He wasn't able to meet conditions imposed by the medical board, including the number of patients he's allowed to see and getting supervision by another doctor with addiction medicine experience. Jane says it's a terrifying situation for his patients. They're sick, sick and desperate. So the options are to find street drugs or get into the government clinic, but not if they can't see you. The medical watchdog APRA couldn't go into detail about why the conditions were imposed. But a spokesperson says conditions are only applied where a national board believes they're necessary to ensure patient safety. Dr Reese says he's unable to give an interview. He's requested a review of the conditions in the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal. Jeff Manu is the acting CEO of the Australian Injecting and Illicit Drug Users League, which aims to advance the human rights of drug users. It's catastrophic for people in their lives. His concern is backed up by an internal Queensland health report obtained by the ABC. It says state clinics have been operating at or over capacity for many years. And if Dr Reese's patients can't continue treatment, their risks include a return to illicit substance use and criminality, contraction of blood-borne viruses, risks to pregnancy, overdose and death. There's not enough GPs or prescribers coming into the system. The government clinics are already overwhelmed. The waiting lists are, you know, anywhere from two to three four months, six months. Jane, Marnie and Steve have all found alternative care, but Steve says some others are back using illicit drugs. If we don't start treating heroin like it's a sickness, the only solution is to lock people up. And how do you stop that? You fix the problem up, you take away the heroin. Queensland patient Steve ending that report by Emma Pollard. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.